Good morning, Henry. Good morning. So today it is already our fourth episode of Geezers of Gear. It's really quite unbelievable that we've gotten this far. And uh, who knew it was going to last? Episode four. Here we go. Um, you know, it's actually been a whole lot of fun. And I think we've done a reasonable job considering. Yeah, we're not doing too much rehearsing. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it really is amazing. And today we have another great topic uh, that we're going to discuss. Henry came to me with this idea for a discussion on uh, our top three concerts that we've ever seen. And it's pretty funny that, uh, you know, when I get thinking about it, there's so many different things we can talk about when we're getting into the topic of you know, your favorite concert? Is it your favorite concert for the band? Is it your favorite concert because of the date that you went with? Is it your favorite concert because of the amazing lighting? And we certainly have that kind of look up itis disease now uh, that we've been in the business for a long time. And another thing, I wanted to give you a little bit of an update on the NAM show. I have a great friend who owns a pretty big company in the music retail uh, world. And he went to the show. He told me it's an interesting show this year because, yes, it's bigger. Everyone's bragging about how much bigger it is. Um, but the funny thing is there's less buyers. So they're letting in more end users, it sounds like, the people who used to have a real hard time getting in. But there's just not as many buyers or there are not as many buyers as there have been in the past. A lot of the big buyers from the big chain stores, etc., they're just not going anymore and instead the show is being filled by a massive number of end users uh, which also brings in probably a whole lot of girls that are uh, maybe chasing some of the band guys or um, just you know guitar players checking out the latest instruments drummers checking out the latest instruments etc so i don't know henry what you're hearing about the show over there if you're hearing the same thing um, you know, certainly the, the show management are going to come out and say that attendance was at an all time high and that, you know, it's the best show they've ever done and it's incredible and all of these great things are going to happen. But, um, for the most part, you know, like I said, uh, you know, attendance is up, but, uh, professional buyers are down. So what are you hearing is going on? I'm looking at some of the product launches for, for NAM. Uh, you know, Absin, we were talking the other day, I think on our last podcast, about how close we can move uh, LEDs together. And Absin just released a thing called a Fine Pixel that has either a 1.5 or a 0.9 millimeter pitch. I'm kind of looking at some video on this. And it's a touring panel, which is amazing. That's pretty wild. And I see Roby has a brand new uh, fixture out for theater called the T1. And then there's a whole bunch of media servers now that are coming out from Analog Way. And that's an interesting uh, podcast that we should do is the evolution of the media server and where it's going and how important it's becoming in production as things get more and more visual. So we have to definitely put a star on that one for the next go around. Definitely media servers seem to be becoming a much bigger deal now. And I don't know if you know, Henry, but a good friend of both of ours, Griff Palmer, has gone to work for, I think he's heading up the sales department or sales and marketing of a company called D3, um, which is a big media server company. So, yeah, I think uh, we're going to be paying a whole lot more attention to that in the future. Anyway, let's move on and get into the topic that we're here to discuss, which is our favorite concerts. And once again, it's a really interesting topic because... 
you know, I have a lot of favorite concerts, you know, that, that I'm not going to talk about here because you only let me pick three. And uh, it, it's kind of a travesty that I'm not picking my first Rush concert because I am Canadian and I was a bass player growing up. So um, seeing Rush was, uh, you know, like seeing God for me. It was an unbelievable experience the first time, and I've probably seen him 20 times now. And, uh, you know, there's other shows that, that, you know, I'll remember forever, including the first Ozzy show that I went to, which remarkably, uh, Henry's not going to list Ozzy as any of his favorites. For those of you who know Henry, you know that he's a massive Ozzy fan and, and Black Sabbath fan. And I thought uh, his list would be, you know, Ozzy, Blizzard of Oz, and then Ozzy, uh, you know, something in 2004 and Black Sabbath in 1979. But uh, he didn't go anywhere near that. And you're going to be pretty surprised when you hear his list. I won't, uh, I won't uh, give you any details here, but uh, Henry will get into that shortly. So... Um so let's stop delaying this and let's jump into a little bit. And I'm going to I'm going to pass the mic over to Henry here and let you get started, buddy. So where do you want to go here first? Your last first or your first last or how do you want to do this? Now, I think I'm going to start with oldest first. So, you know, following the uh, dead person series that we came to uh, we seem to keep on uh, talking about uh, David Cassidy. Uh, from the Partridge family, believe it or not. For those of you not familiar with the Partridge family, you can see that on uh, over-the-air television if you have a, a digital TV antenna. But after, you know, he was a teen idol. He was in a lot of these teen magazines. He was a vocalist, and he was very, very talented. And after that show wrapped up, uh, he had done some personal touring uh, with his own bands, written some songs. But he also was really, really interested in Broadway production. So in 1987, he appeared on Broadway in London in a show called Time. And uh, I remember flying over for the Plaza Sound and Lighting show. And my father and I, we had a, uh, a night off. So we said, hey, you know, let's go see the show. And just by, I, you know, just by luck, we were able to get tickets because it was a huge special effects show. And, um, you know, in thinking about this and thinking about what were my three top shows, it wasn't just the music or it wasn't just... Uh, the costumes or things like that, but it was the overall, hey, what was the most comprehensive? What did I see was the biggest trend-setting um, type of show that, that kind of carried on in, in different variations, right? So Time was a show that uh, featured David Cassidy. Uh, the plot was pretty cheesy. He was a rock star that got beamed up to another planet, and he, Earth was being judged for its evil, and he had to sing his way out of it. But it was the uh, first Broadway-type production that I saw with just huge moving set pieces. So at one point in the show, probably about halfway through, when he gets beamed up and he's standing in front of the international court, uh, these, this 80-foot flying saucer, uh, in-diameter flying saucer, is uh, it's elevated out of the bottom of the stage. I mean, the stage must have been, you know— they must have had a five-story tall basement underneath the stage, but they, this flying saucer comes up and lands on, on the stage. And it was just, it was incredibly mind blowing. So there was a lot of special effects going on with a lot of set pieces. It was the first time I'd ever seen extensive use of personal uh, body harness flying rigs. Uh, it was the first time that set pieces rather than line sets or the pipes coming in on a traditional uh, Broadway show where you, you, you lower a, a backdrop, right, in. 
this had huge, 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 incredible, incredible uh, pieces. And the, the stage continually moved uh, quite extensively. Now, at that time, automated lighting was just starting to become popular. There were some clay packy fixtures on the rig, but it was not extensive. I, if I had to guess, I would say there was probably eight to a dozen uh, moving mirror fixtures on the show. So they really, the designer and uh, the people that put these shows together, the, the lighting directors, they used a lot of use of... Um, you know, PARs were the largest component of that at the time. So a lot of PAR 36, a lot of ACL landing lights, but they did things like they used rotating mirrors in front of them that, that were mechanized. They used a lot of water type effects where they would insert a light bulb into a tube that caused a ripple effect on the stage. Um, you know, so it was just quite a visual spectacle. The costumes are what you would identify as um, Cirque du Soleil type costumes. And, uh, you know, overall, it got rave, uh, got rave reviews. So after that show closed, interestingly enough, it kind of reemerged in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand for many years as the uh, EFX show. And that was uh, David Cassidy, again, starring in that. So they kind of rehashed that. They had about a $90 million budget, uh, believe it or not, to put that into Las Vegas. And, of course, that ran for an extensive amount of time. And at that point, they had a ton of cyber lights on it. And things like that, and uh, that was really the first show that I that I saw that kind of set off the Cirque du Soleil trend, where you had incredible theatrics and uh, incredible costumes, and obviously many many of you have seen Cirque du Soleil shows, but this was kind of like an early type of one of those shows. So that's all I want to really say about that. I had no idea that uh, that that time show from David Cassidy is what became EFX and. You know, I had obviously a lot to do with the FX show. I think that was right when I had started with high end, and there was certainly a huge amount of high end gear on that on that rig. Um, and obviously, the the automation system that uh, uh, what was it called? Scenic. What what was the company before PRG? Scenic. Scenic Technologies. Scenic Technologies. Uh, owned by Jerry Harris. That's who did all of the uh, automation, as I recall. And I, I got taken for a uh, tour under the stage to see what was going on. And it was really unbelievable. I mean, it was it was wild. So the other the other thing you were talking about, some sort of homemade light fixtures that they used on the show. And honestly, that some of that is is, you know, when I see shows like that, those are some of my favorite moments when I see real creativity and innovation where you don't just go buy the most expensive latest greatest clay packy moving light but instead you go hey if I glue these two things together and use a bit of duct tape I think I could really come up with a cool look and there's a million examples but one of the other examples I would use was uh, a show I saw somewhere in in Southern California with uh, Butch Allen was the LD and uh, the band was Garbage I'm not saying that they were a garbage band. The band was called Garbage. And uh, uh, I remember there were these these uh, kick lights, these things that were, were uh, on the front of the stage, you know, kind of uplighting the performers or the band. And they were just really cool looking. And I don't even remember. Maybe they weren't uplights. Maybe they were coming from the rig. But it was just a real weird sort of industrial looking fixture and i said what a cool industrial look where did you get those 
And Butch said to me, Home Depot. <laughs> and I just thought that was the funniest thing. He, the coolest look for me of the show. And he had paid, you know, 50 or 60 bucks each and bought them at Home Depot. So, uh, you know, really neat. Well, wow. I, I wasn't expecting David Cassidy, Henry. So, uh, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, I didn't get quite so artsy on mine. But the funny thing about your favorite show and the reason I got into some of those questions with Henry when I said, you know, do you want favorite lighting, favorite sound, favorite performance? Sometimes it's just an emotion that you got from the show. And there was a lot of those for me. You know, the first time I saw Rush Live, Canadian bass player I was, you know, uh, seeing them live just absolutely blew me away. Um, Van Halen 1984 was unbelievable, just completely blew me away. Not long after I started with Martin, I remember getting an invite to go down and see uh, Peter Gabriel Secret World, and that was in 1994, and um, just completely blown away with that show and some of the interesting technology that they used. Like he had a camera on his head that. Uh, you know, was kind of following him around and it was just a really weird effect and this thing where he walked out of the phone booth, I'll never forget, and dragged the phone across the stage. I think it was Come Talk to Me. Um, Blizzard of Oz. His shows was, were always amazing, yeah. Yeah, the Blizzard Sorry. of Oz tour. Sorry to steal your, yep. your Ozzy Osbourne opportunity or moment, but seeing that band with Randy Rhodes, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldridge on drums... Uh, you know, and and Ozzy fresh thrown out of Black Sabbath uh, was just unbelievable. I remember Motorhead opened for it, and I think they were just taking a break in their North American tour leg or something. And so it was a party night for them all, which not that every night wasn't with those groups. But um, I can't remember exactly what the stunt was. But at the end, uh, at some point in the show, Motorhead came back out on stage and I think they were naked if I remember correctly and were just running around like fairies on the stage and uh, throwing stuff at Ozzy and his band and it was just absolutely a riot but you know so there's a lot of those memorable moments especially when you're in this industry and you're fortunate enough to have great friends who are lighting companies or sound companies or lighting designers or tour managers whatever who are constantly inviting you out to see shows and I could probably talk for four hours as Henry could, but I would have to say the one that really, uh, well, there's three that are kind of 1A, 1B, and 1C for me. So I'll start from the top, which is Roger Waters' The Wall, which was in, uh, I think, uh, around 2010, if I was to guess. And I watched it from third row. And... Uh, uh, for once, I think I really was sitting there thinking, God, this would look amazing from the back of the arena or from, from front of house. I wanted to be further back because it was such a spectacle and such a visual experience unlike anything I'd ever seen. And I've seen it all and I've seen Pink Floyd live. Um, but this the, the set design and the lighting design and the audio and the and the props that were used were just unbelievable. And the main, you know, the, the basic premise of the show is that, you know, it starts out with the entire wall and throughout the show they're taking bricks down off of the wall and it ends and the wall is gone, of course. And but there's things that happen like, you know, planes crashing and fighter jets and all this stuff where and it's it's in full surround sound, but it's also surround visual. 
So there's things going on all around you. And it, it was just mind blowing. And I couldn't tell you what light fixture or uh, what sound company they used or any of that stuff because I was there as a, an invited guest by, by my wife at the time who, who worked for uh, the record company that was promoting it. And um, so I really wasn't working. I was just there as, as an audience member like anybody else. And I was just completely blown away. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what more I can say about it. I mean, Mark Brickman on the lighting design, and I'm not sure if he did the set design as well, but it was unbelievable. The characters they created, unbelievable. Just visual overload and probably the one night that I really wished I did, uh, you know, recreational drugs because it probably would have further enhanced the experience. And maybe some of you can share those stories, but... Uh, so that for me was my, uh, I would say number one, two or three, I'm not sure, but it was right up there. Did you yeah, see that show, Henry? Me. Um, I've seen it on video and I, I saw yeah. the, uh, the other one with the, uh, oh, what was the name of it? Uh, Delta Sound of Thunder. Oh, okay. So that was, yeah. that, that was an interesting one for, for them too. I mean, the audio is amazing on that type of stuff. What a yeah, great, all of, great all band. Of, all, all of Roger Waters tours were, were really, really great. But that one to me just, you know, because of the use of the entire arena and, you know, the stage was the width of the entire arena and the wall was the width of the entire stage. And it was just such an experience that I had never seen from any other concert except maybe Pink Floyd. So, bravo to them. Next. There you go. Um, okay, so I know I'm going to get a hazing for this one. Um, but well, in like, the theme like of... David Cassidy isn't going to crush you. <laughs> in the theme of uh, 80s hair bands, it's got to be Poison. And um, so, Marcel, I know you were hazing me about this yesterday. But, you know, when you, when you think about the genre of music that... Um, that came out of the eighties, everything had to be bigger, more ostentatious, louder guitars, bigger explosions. And I think really no single show represents that more than, you know, uh, the poison flesh and blood tour. So I remember being about 10 rows back from that. Um, the show opens up, it's completely dark and they set off these flash pots on stage and, uh, these, these giant flames shoot up and the, I remember the heat, was so intense being, you know, very relatively close to the stage, but I was checking to see if my eyebrows were still on. It was just this huge flash and this heat wave and it made you flinch back and you open up your eyes and the band was there. And, you know, obviously million barrel lights flying around, uh, you know, CC DeVille had his hair teased up probably about four feet over his head. Uh, super loud guitars. It was just, it was the biggest, most ostentatious, show that that i had seen so it was just it was kind of like very very over the top for me and i know that there were many 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 types of 80s bands that that did that you know motley crew comes to mind with the drum kit that spins over and goes around on like a roller coaster track and uh you know some of the other gags but literally you know poison for me was just like the biggest gag show and it was a, it was a fun show to tell you the truth and also one of the first shows that I'd ever seen with extensive use of lasers, which is, it's an interesting sensation when you see lasers in large productions for the first time, because obviously in the eighties, those things were very expensive. A laser tube was, you know, a hundred thousand bucks an argon laser tube. So they're not like they are now where you can get them out of China for $300, right? So 
you really kind of get spoiled by the use of, of you know, uh, that that effect right now. But so back I, I then, guess you it was never, huge. I guess you never saw Rush with, with our friend Howard Ungerleiter early on because Rush, honestly, other than Pink Floyd again, but Rush to me was the most experimental when it came to the use of things like lasers. Um, you know, Rush used lasers really early in, in, uh, in the game. And I think Blue Oyster Cult was another one that I remember somebody telling me, are you going to go see them? They use a laser. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> so, yeah, I, so again, also, I mean, sorry. So, no, so also in the honorable mentions, um, I have to throw uh, Kiss, obviously the originators of theatrical rock, right? Seeing some of their 1974 footage was just incredible for what they did. And obviously Alice Cooper also. And Alice Cooper did uh, a production called Welcome to My Nightmare that he uh, collaborated with Disney costume designers on. And they did this uh, this rock opera, for lack of a better term. And you can actually see that on YouTube. And there's also uh, a DVD available on it, too. So anyway, that's my number two show. Um, Marcel, I'll let you go next and tell me what... If you're talking about the very first night at uh, night at the opera, uh, <laughs> nightmare, welcome to my nightmare. Um, yes, that was in like the early '70s, I think '71, '72. The very next tour that he did, or the next major tour that Alice Cooper did, was actually, I believe, either my first or second concert that I ever went to, and it was at the McMahon Stadium. It was a stadium show in Calgary. And I went with, I believe, my sisters, if I remember correctly, because I was all of maybe 12 or 13 years old when I went. And I was just completely shocked and blown away. And so many years later, probably about 10 years ago, I was talking with Alice Cooper. And first, it was really funny getting um, golf tips and, and, you know, helping me with my, my putting problems and stuff. But... Secondly, I said, you know, I, I got to tell you, you were like the first concert I saw. And he said, oh, my God, which tour was it? And I said it was the Alice Cooper show in like probably mid to late 70s. And he said, uh, he said, I'm sure you remember it much better than I do because I don't remember <laughs> anything from back then. And I do remember one part of the show where he climbed, you know, for those of you who are too young to remember this or to know this, we used to have speaker stacks. They weren't flown from the rig. They weren't line array systems. They were stacked up on the side of the stage, and they were these huge piles of speakers. And so Alice decided it would be really cool to take his bottle of whatever he drank at the time, Jack Daniels or something, drink half of it, and then climb up the speaker stack and sit up there and drink the other half while he sang Only Women Bleed, I think it was. And uh, then he couldn't get back down. So it was this huge thing that happened during the show where half the half the crew had to go over there and help Alice Cooper get back down off the speaker stacks. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, one of those guys who created, you know, the visual rock opera kind of tour uh, or show. So my my second one was actually one of those experience of a lifetime kind of things where our job, our industry allows us certain perks that to some they go oh geez I gotta go to Prague again but this was one of those moments where I was invited we had sold an awful lot at Martin we had sold a lot of uh fixtures to the uh Obies who was doing the uh Michael Jackson tour world tour 
And it was actually the last world tour that he did prior to getting in all the, the legal trouble that he got into and probably the last world tour that he did, in fact. So um, I believe it was the history tour. And uh, so anyways, I invited a client, which was Tim Brennan, who at the time uh, had just joined PRG through their purchase of his company, Cinema Services. And um, we went to the factory, if I remember correctly, the Martin factory in Denmark. We went to the Plaza show uh, in London and then, uh, or it could be in a different order, uh, but we went to see Michael Jackson's opening show, which was in Prague. And landing in Prague was interesting because we got to see the, I think it's called an entonage, and you can probably correct me on this, Henry, but it's a, it's comparable to like the C-130, our big cargo plane, military cargo plane. Absolutely. I think it's called an entonage, and it's a Russian plane, and uh, but it's even much larger than a C-130, just monstrous. And they carried this entire tour, I think, in one or two of those those jets uh, all over Eastern Europe and Europe. So um, the other funny thing that happened is uh, we got into a taxi, uh, myself and Tim Brennan, neither of us being very good at speaking Czech, and um, found our way into a taxi and the driver said, where do you want to go? And we said, Hotel Intercontinental. And so he jumps out of the car and starts throwing our bags back out of the car. And he says, no, no, you can't go. You no go there. Uh, Michael Jackson concert. And we're like, but we're with the concert. We're part of it. And I'm trying to show him my my laminate pass and, and you know, that we, we belong there. And uh, we actually have reservations at that hotel. So... We got in a different taxi, finally, and we got to the hotel, and I finally saw what was going on. There was an absolute mob scene at the hotel. It happened to be the same hotel where uh, Michael Jackson was staying, and the band was staying, and there had to be 10,000 people, maybe 15,000 people, um, at a barricade that was kind of opened up just outside the hotel, and they were there day and night the entire time we were there. Uh, they never went away. And it was funny because my room was on the same side of the hotel as Michael Jackson's room. And every once in a while, I would peek open the curtains just a tiny bit and like wave or something. And you could hear the crowd outside going crazy. So <laughs> it was uh, it was really humorous. Another funny thing about this show. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to try not to talk too much, but it was it was an unbelievable experience. But another funny thing uh, was that. The venue was not a venue, it was a field. And I remember from the hotel, you walked across the river, and then there was this sort of hill, and halfway up the hill, there was a monument, which at the time was Lenin. It was a statue of Lenin, and um, not John Lennon, but the dictator. And uh, they took down the statue of Lenin, and I mean, it was a 20-foot-tall statue. They took it down, which was unheard of, and put up a statue of Michael Jackson. And so I realized, okay, this is going to be massive. And when you got, so just over this hill that this statue was on was a big open field that they put a fence around and sold 125,000 tickets. And when I tell you there were buses lined up and one bus would say Germany, one would say France, one would say, I mean, they, they were busing people in from all over Europe for this show. It was unbelievable. So, um, Tim and I get to the show and we are invited backstage to go actually meet the artist. 
And I'll never forget when he shook my hand. First of all, how it felt uh, was kind of weird. And secondly, um, he was so humble and grateful. He said, thank you so much. You came all the way from America just to see my show. And I appreciate that so much. And I really hope you enjoy it. And it was it was such a humbling experience because this is, you know, at the time, the biggest star in the world. And he was just so humble and grateful that we were there. So the next thing that happened is Tim and I go venturing out from backstage and we have to get to the front of house, which is normally not a very big deal. We have laminates around our neck and you go around the outside of the venue and, you know, sneak your way over to the front of the house and you're good. They've got seats there for you. You're good. So uh, we went through this crowd. We just kind of cut right through the crowd which seemed like an eternity and it seemed like it was five miles to get to the front of the house. It was probably a couple hundred yards, but I literally thought I was going to die. So Tim and I are holding hands, cutting through this crowd of 125,000 people and they were angry and hostile. They've been waiting there since maybe the night before or the early that morning or whatever. They were sweaty and angry and tired and they did not want anyone taking their spot that they'd been saving. And we're going against the crowd, though. We're going away from the stage. And so it was almost like a movie. At one point, we're holding hands above the crowd, and our hands separate. And all I can think is one of us is going to get trampled by this crowd and never be heard from again. But we actually both made it to front of house. Uh, we sat with Peter Morrison and, and uh, his crew, and it was just an unbelievable show. Peter did things with, you know, he had a massive rig that consisted of, uh, what was that, that light that Obi's made that was the huge uh, moving mirror X-scan? Is that what it was called? I believe so, yes. Yeah, so they had a bunch of those. Uh, they had a whole bunch of Martin fixtures. They had some Intellibeams, as I recall. But, uh, you know, just the show, the choreography, the the costumes, the everything, the sound, everything was just unbelievable. It really was an incredible, incredible experience. And uh, one that, you know, I'm grateful just to be in this industry to have experienced that. One correction on that, it's not an X-Scan. I think it was called the Telescan, right? So going back to Servo. There was the original Telescan, and then they came out with sort of a hyped up version of the Telescan. We'll have to look it up. I can't remember what it was called, but... Uh, there was there was like a hyper version of the telescan that was bigger and brighter, and I thought it was called the X scan, but I I'll have to call be, Dave uh, up and and find out what that was. That'd be kind of interesting. They're in wise, business. Wiseman would yeah. remember, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure he played a role in that somehow. Absolutely. I'm just I have this mental image of you and Tim Brennan holding holding hands. It's just kind of making me shudder a little bit. <laughs> it, it was scary. And I mean, honestly, we thought we were going to die. We thought one of us would get trampled and, and you'd, you'd die in Prague and, you know, no one would ever see you again. So it was frightening. But it, what an experience. So one of my uh, my last, I guess my number three um, is the Metallica load slash reload tour. And, um, I love that show to tell you the truth. Uh, Metallica, for those of you that have not seen Metallica, they're probably one of the best live bands that I've ever seen play. I've seen play. They just are, they have so much energy. They are so into it. They know how to draw the crowd in. So they have incredible, incredible stage presence. At the time I was working for high end systems. I just come on to, uh, to head up, 
uh, the studio color uh, customer service portion of things. And obviously there was, I believe, 130 or 140 of the original high-end studio colors on that show. Um, Metallica had come to Austin and they had also the, the next night it was heading on to Dallas. But at that same time, they were also recording the show for video. So I actually was able to um, be part of that event. And uh, Henry, was that the was that the tour where the the stage took up the entire floor of the arena and they started with it light? That's correct. The light, the house lights were on. Yeah. That's right. That's correct. Um, and was that also the one where they faked the accident? Yeah, correct. That was where they lit the guy on fire. Um, so that was, you know, towards the, I guess, probably two thirds of the way through that show. Uh, they did fake a, a fire on the stage and the entire rig fell in and uh, they lit a guy on fire. And I remember the person sitting next to me, you know, half of those people at that show were just on some kind of chemical substance. Right. So they're really into Metallica, but they're also half baked at the time. And when that guy ran out on fire, this was during the Dallas show, um, it nearly caused a stampede. Everybody just went, because oh, they thought it was real. And I remember the guy freaking out next to me. And I said, no, dude, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a stunt. It's a thing, you know. And then obviously the rig fell in. All the lights went out. The stage went black. There was like a mini intermission, for lack of a better term. And then the band, uh, you know, faked the PA coming back on. They turned up, you know, a channel of sound here or there. And then they did the remainder of the show with just under kind of like normal lights. And it was it was a very, very, very cool experience. Um, you know, I'm a particular fan of theater in the round in that it's it's more intimate because no matter where you sit in a space, in an arena or uh, in a theater, the artist is just typically that much closer to you. So you're not sitting in a nosebleed seat in a stadium, you know, on, you know, section D around the ring of a stadium where the, the artists look about two inches tall when you look at them. So, uh, right. so just a very, very, very cool show. Very well, uh, produced. Um, I have full laminates for that. Yeah. Show, I thought so. those couple of tricks that they did, the one where they started the show with the house lights still on. Yes. And and then, you know, that that fire thing in the middle and stuff, I, I just thought that was really cool. And, you know, John Broderick was always uh, an interesting LD, um, the lighting designer for for Metallica for many years. I don't know if he still is or not, but uh, I would assume so. Um, but one of the funny things I, I remember a, another uh, Broderick story where they were working on a Metallica rig and um we were providing some lighting for it i believe through upstaging if i remember correctly and upstaging was trying to get broderick to use a whole hog console which was just coming out and um his complaint and the reason that he still wanted to use his old avo you know diamond q or whatever it was um was that an analog button triggered a light more quickly and and with all the you know the the real heavy guitar you know choppy music he was kind of a musician like he was hitting those same chops that the band was you know and and so when they would go into a really fast like you know boom 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 kind of music he was doing the same thing with the buttons and he didn't like how the digital buttons through dmx were responding and so it drove lighting companies crazy, but it was such an amazing effect when you saw it live that the guy really had a great point. 
And so I don't know how they dealt with it later in life, but no, they used uh, diversitronics analog fire at strobes, and it was kind of funny. That was the next point I was going to was going to bring up. So during the song one, where you know they, uh, if anybody that's seen the video, the guy is a nugget from the war. He's got all of his legs and arms blown off. But when they go through that section, Broderick would actually stand over there and manually trigger the strobes almost like playing a keyboard for lack of a better term, right? So it was just very, very yeah. cool. And yeah, DMX at the time, and I think it's gotten better, but with DMX, you have to anticipate cues. So the communication protocol going down into you know a data distributor and then triggering a light, uh, you had to anticipate cues back then, where analog, even though you had a giant snake of multiple channels going down into dimming racks and into uh, digital to analog converters, the speed of that was always fast. It was much more real time. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. I, I love that Broderick got into that stuff and considered himself like part of the act, part of the band. You know, he was jamming with them. And, you know, another guy that comes to mind and has a big connection to upstaging as well is, is uh, a gentleman named Jason Bullock. And he's out now with uh, one of the hip hop artists, I forget who, um, Wiz Khalif, that's who it is. He's out with Wiz Khalif right now. Jason, you know, if you don't know him, you'll always recognize him when you see him at a gig because A, he's usually got green or purple hair. And secondly, he is so visual and so animated when he's doing lighting for a band and he's headbanging and he's hitting every shot and he's, you know, he's, he's a performer. And I think there's actually you know, those, uh, those videos that become viral videos on Facebook and stuff. There was one where it said, look at this guy thinks he's in the band or something like that. And, and it was Jason. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And just a great guy and a really good LD as well. But, uh, as an operator, just being out there and doing that kind of performance is pretty cool. And I saw Broderick similarly, you know, he, he loved to be on cue with the band. Cool. All right, Marcel, what's your last one? Finally, yeah, finally, uh, again, I keep going back to upstaging, but um, we worked a bit with upstaging on uh, the Paul McCartney tour, Space Within Us, I think it was called, 2005. And um, one of the really surprising things to me was that Roy Bennett was the designer. And Roy Bennett at the time was really an amazing, one of my favorite heavy rock kinds of designers the stuff that he did with uh um uh, just all kinds of acts i mean nine inch nails for sure but so many different acts uh smashing pumpkins i think he worked with he he just did some really cool stuff but his trademark was really very hard flash uh lots of white and to me it was just a very um you know non Paul McCartney look you know you don't think of him as that sort of traditional designer that would do you know like a lot of the stuff that that Peter Morse did the real classic uh Barbara Streisand Bette Midler kind of looks um is where I kind of saw Paul McCartney and boy was I wrong because uh what Roy Bennett did for that tour was just unbelievable and and so one of the things that we worked on was um uh, John Huddleston at one point called me and asked me if we could help them uh, create a Mac 250 with LEDs in it. And I had an, a brand new LED company at the time and, 
you know, we just are very well connected and know lots of people. And I, I can't remember how much I helped him, but I think we actually uh, ended up getting him the, however many it was, it was a hundred or 200 Mac 250s. He needed them used and he needed them cheap. And I think we sold them to him from a company in Europe, perhaps. So um, he then had them converted over to put an LED light engine in them. And that became sort of the backdrop to the stage. You see a bunch of uh, lights uh, hanging in the back there. Those were all Mac 250s with LEDs uh, added into them. And then to add a funny note to that, I believe we actually sold most, if not all of those on the flip side, just a few years ago, uh, someone from upstaging called us again and said, Hey, we have these couple hundred Mac two fifties with, uh, LEDs in them, custom fixtures. Can you help us sell them? So we went full circle on that one, but, uh, you know, the floor was a video screen, a video display, and it just kind of curved up like a, like a green screen almost into the, into the, the backdrop of the stage. And, you know, the other thing was, again, I talked about it early, the feel you get from certain shows that you can remember. And I just remember goosebumps when, uh, you know, when when Paul McCartney started singing, I'd never seen the Beatles. And, you know, the Beatles and Led Zeppelin are the two bands that I never saw. And, and you know, if I could uh, have that uh, uh, pinch me moment, I'd love to see either one of those. So uh, seeing Paul McCartney live was certainly the closest thing. And um, so, yeah, I mean, just an incredible show, obviously incredible music, uh, an incredible performer and singer, uh, which at the time he had to be pushing 70 and still sounded amazing. You can see, I think you can probably see the whole show on on YouTube if you want to see it. So that was right up there. Like I said, I can't say any one of these was was one, two or three. I think those were the three favorites for me. Um, there's a lot of other great ones, but from a performance value and musical value and just what it, how it made me feel seeing those shows, uh, all three of those were incredible. So anything, uh, anything you want to add here, Henry? No, I just, I think, you know, the examples that we laid out really are all about entertainers and stage presence. And, um, that's really heavily discounted these days. When you look at some of the newer bands, they are depending on video, they are depending on you know, lighting, they're depending on massive sound systems to kind of prop up their talent, right? So everybody they were Some of them are depending on vocal tracks too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they right. don't it's sing the, anymore. Yeah. So I mean it's yeah. it's just, you know, for me it's always been about the entertainer and then the sound lighting and video supplementing the, you know, that show to enhance it. Right. I mean Paul McCartney is just his stage presence is just unbelievable. You know, I like him yeah. Paul McCartney almost to like a Sinatra. Sinatra, you know, I remember doing a show with him. You know, he's he's coming out with 64 par cans and about, you know, 12 ellipsoidals. And he just he comes out and he freaking rocks it just with his his stage presence, you know. And uh, yeah, the lights aren't the show necessarily. Now we've definitely come to rely more on the lights as the show, because I think obviously some of the musicianship isn't maybe what it was at one point And some of the the catalogs of music aren't what they were. So when you're when you're Frank Sinatra, you don't need an incredible light show. And that was kind of how I looked at the Paul McCartney thing. Like, why, why does he even need lights? Point a flashlight at the guy and let him sing, you know, let it be. But, um, but again, Roy Bennett proved me wrong because it was really visually an incredible show. So I think visually it stood up to the music and stood up to the guy standing up there singing these songs. 
So it was pretty cool. But again, some of my favorites are still those moments when Butch Allen puts some Home Depot lights out on the stage and you go, wow, what is that? And uh, it's some, you know, work light or shop light or something from Home Depot. So, well, great. I mean, this has been uh, really interesting and fun. Honestly, you hit me from left field a couple times there, Henry, with uh, uh, with David Cassidy and uh, and Poison. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not picking on Poison as a show band. They've done really, really well. Uh, my problem with Poison was always kind of that I think they were the caricature of the music that I loved in the 80s, the the glam rock of the 80s, there were much more talented bands than Poison. And I just never jived on Poison because they just weren't as good as some of the other bands that were out there from a musicianship standpoint. So um, that was the only reason. I mean, my crowd, Poison was kind of the nickelback of the 80s. And I happen to love Nickelback, too. So, you know, which, uh, you know, I'm probably going to get slaughtered for saying that. But, uh, you know, I like Nickelback. I think they're a great band. I think they serve a purpose. They write great songs. They're kind of like today's version of Poison or Def Leppard. So um, anyways, it's been fun. We took a little longer than we thought. We planned on getting this done in 20 or 30 minutes. It's 48 minutes right now. So thanks for hanging in there with us. And thank you all once again for joining us on Geezers of Gear. And next week, I think we're going to try and swing back into talking about some gear. But certainly at some point in the next few weeks, we're going to bring my friend Greg Godovitz in. Uh, We're going to start bringing some really interesting guests onto the show. And uh, feel free to shoot us an email, geezers at gearsource.com, geezers at gearsource.com. So with that, I will say thank you and... Uh, We appreciate you joining us today. Join us again next week where we will talk a whole lot about gear and probably a little bit of nonsense too. Thanks and have a fantastic day from the geezers of gear.